What's an M. Night? M. Night Shyamalan, the Indian filmmaker from Philly. Oh my God, this dude's a big deal. He always you know puts some I mean? like awesome twist at the end of his movies to trick the audience. Oh yeah, yeah, like like in The Sixth Sense, you find out that the dude um, in that hairpiece the whole time, that's Bruce Willis the whole movie. That's not the twist. That's not the twist of that movie. That wasn't the twist. No. Hello and welcome to the M. Night Shift, the podcast where we review and discuss the career of M. Night Shyamalan. I'm your co-host, A.J. Gonzalez. And I'm the other guy, Brian Connolly. We both hail from Vulcan Video here in wonderful Austin, Texas. Wonderful, warm Austin, Texas. It's 150 degrees here. And it will only get hotter and hotter. So if you don't live here, don't bother moving here. It's too hot. It's too hot. <laughs> it's not cool anymore. It's just really unbearably hot. And according to news, it'll be that way for the next hundred years, and then we all die. So there you go. All right. Done and done. <laughs> all right. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right into it. First, this month's scotch is Monkey Shoulder. It has three monkeys on it, which I felt tied in nicely to the true tech or whatever, those three <laughs> uh, tree monkeys that kept the law or whatever. Yeah, you know. The uh, legend here says blended malt scotch whiskey rooted in malt whiskey history and inspired by the malt men who still turned the malting barley by hand, monkey shoulder is blended in small batches from three of Speyside's finest single malt whiskeys to achieve a smoother, richer taste. It's good. I like it. Is this a top shelf? Uh, no, it, it was one down from the top shelf. Mm. The, the scotches on the shelf above this were all like $50. This but is this good. was still reasonable. It, it's a smooth, it's a smoother one than normal. You yeah. also pick up, a, it's like a little sweeter, I feel, than maybe other ones we've had. I can taste that. You see no, that, this like has a slightly like an, sweeter? Yeah, this is a nice uh, scotch. I would, I'd probably just keep drinking this straight up. I don't think I would mix this with anything. No. Um, I mean, all the stuff we've had, I wouldn't. Oh, it says you can taste mellow vanilla with spicy hints of zesty oh. orange, vanilla honey, and spiced oak. Well, there's the sweetness, yeah. Wow, there you go. Inspired by the malt man's craft, Monkey's Shoulder has been created using three of its finest single malt whiskeys, resulting in a rich bladed malt of exceptional smoothness. It is exceptional. So there you go. I said smooth. It said that. I said sweet, and it's telling me vanilla. So maybe I'm starting to learn how to taste alcohol now uh, that I'm a grown-up. A malt man's skill is demonstrated as he turns the malting barley by hand. Years ago, some malt men would develop a strain injury known as monkey shoulder. Um, Thankfully, the condition no longer exists. <laughs> Good find. I like this That's, one a lot. I, I do too. I had never seen it in the, uh, the store before, but then all of a sudden uh, my wife saw like three bottles of scotch that each had a funny animal on the cover one had a pig so one had monkeys and the other one i think had like an angry goat on it or something i like it <laughs> i like this one too this is good all right so the movie we're doing this month is lady in the water whose turn is it to get to do the plot i think it's your turn oh man this yeah. plot is hard 
So many rules. Okay, so many rules. Okay, so the movie, Lady in the Water. Uh, it begins with sort of a fable, a sort of like precursor to the story of like what this world is about. Frankly, it's a little confusing. <laughs> There's these things that live in the water called narfs, and I'm not sure exactly what they do. They keep the peace, you know, they like keep things safe for people. Is that is that right? Yeah, they like <laughs> helping. Really... They help and guide yeah. humankind. Help and guide humankind, but they're not mermaids. They're narfs, and then they protect humans from scrunts. Scrunts are these sort of evil dogs. They kind of look like hellhounds a little bit, like a more organic vegetable version of a hellhound. Uh, yeah. And then there's something to do with the narfs get taken away by an eagle to some other place when their job is done helping mankind out so they they're kind of like guarding angels looking over mankind it's very convoluted it's not quite understanding what it is but then we open with cleveland so cleveland is a landlord a soup maybe he's even the super he's the superintendent of this entire apartment complex in no shock philadelphia (laughs) and you meet a crazy cast of characters there's uh, the movie begins uh, with uh, a fil- the local film critic moving in in Cleveland, played by Paul Giamatti, showing this film critic around, played by Bob Balaban. And as he's going through, it conveniently introduces you to all the other characters. So there's a really tall Korean lady who loves Britney Spears-type clothes and clubbing, but she's really smart, and but she's supposed to be in college, but she looks like she's 40. Then there's like a whole uh, room full of like, you know, like potheads, basically. They don't say they're potheads, but you can tell. They, they're the smokers. They smoke. They smoke they're, cigarettes, but, but they're supposed to be stoned. They talk a lot, and they don't have any, you know, jobs or anything. Then you have the weird old guy who keeps to himself. And then you have the weird old lady who's, like, friend to all the animals. And then you have, um, like, five Hispanic sisters that all live together uh, in one place. And then you have the guy... Who uh, works out, but he only works at one arm, and that's uh, Freddy Rodriguez. Works at one arm, so his one arm is buff, and his other arm is normal. And then you also have a writer, played by M. Night Shyamalan, and his lives with his sister, which was confusing at first because I thought it was his wife, but it's his sister. It's just a grown-ass man living with his sister. I thought so, too. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so all these people in this apartment, and so then Cleveland doing his like super rounds at night, has been having problems with something in the pool where it's like, oh, something's clogging at the pool, something's splashing around after hours. Like, there's rules. You can't go in the pool after a certain time. It is revealed that it is a narf, in fact, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. And basically, over the course of the movie, you learn this whole story that I already told you in the beginning that she's protecting from the scrunts. And there's kind of this whole complex type of people that she has to meet to be able to get to the eagle to get back to wherever and while she's doing this she's supposed to be enlightening people to what their roles in life are the end that's basically it without giving out too many details that's basically what the movie's about and it's a complex you know journey because there's the scrunts that everyone has to run away from and and there's like all these it's there's a (laughs) it's really complicated movie like you have to it's so, like, she says, like, there's, like, this group of people, and they'll help me along. Uh, and then there's the, uh, the the guy, the guardian against the scrunts. Yeah, they all have the, uh, the names, yeah. like, archetypal names. Yeah. Like, the guardian, the yeah. guild, the, the guild, healer. The healer. There's someone who's the, the, write, the writer 
that whose writing is really important, and she must meet this person. And so, like, the first half of the movie uh, is Cleveland kind of being like, what's a snarf? What's a scrunt? And is basically asking his Asian neighbors to, for some reason, know all of this information. Uh, and then he it's goes... It's an Eastern bedtime story. <laughs> it's an Eastern, sure, Eastern bedtime story. And then he goes to the film critic and be like, what? How would I find a guild? How, and, he, and the film critic gives the clues based on his, his great knowledge of film and stories. And then he grabs all these people, but then he realizes he grabbed the wrong people and then he has to do it again. So he grabs them and then he figures it out again. So for some reason, that's part of the plot. And they have a big... That's, that's, <laughs> that's the twist of this movie. Is that the twist? Yeah, I guess that is. The twist is like he grabs who he thought was the guild and the healer and the guardian, and then they're like, oh no, you picked the wrong people, and then he does it again. And you're like, okay. So you watch them do it again, and then they throw, they're throw they throwing a barbecue while they're figuring this out, and then the scrunts show up, and then they're chased away, and then these monkeys, these like punk monkeys with mohawks. <laughs> I'm not making this up. If you haven't seen this, it's true. Jump out of trees, and they like kill the scrunts, and then the narf gets picked up by an eagle, and then, then the movie's and over. And she flies away, she and flies then away. that is it. There's that is literally the end. The movie just ends, there's and that's no, it. Uh, there's no, what's it called? Denim, Denimois? Denimue? <laughs> I, it's been a long time since film school. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> there's no epilogue or wrap-up or see how this uh, event really affected these people. Yeah. It just flat-out ends, because I was all out of story. <laughs> the end. And, of course, the Narf's name is Story. That's Bryce Dallas Howard's character's name, is Story. Uh, so where do we even begin with talking about this movie? Uh-huh. I don't even know where to start. Like, There's so much to talk about. We can just get out of the way. This movie was very hated when it came out by... Everybody, film critics and audiences alike, it lost money. It did not. It was Shyamalan's well. first movie to lose money. The yeah. Village, which a lot of people hated, still made over a hundred million dollars. Word of mouth, I think, spread fast on this, and people just didn't go. And it, the trailer didn't make it look scary or anything. And then just every critic was so so extra mean about this one. The Roger Ebert review, if you haven't read it, is very very funny. He gave but it one that, and a half stars. <laughs> that review was actually written by one of his protégés. What? Uh, it's written by Jim Emerson, because this was during the time when Roger Ebert was ill. But isn't it credited as being Roger Ebert? It's No, like, if it, it, in very small font, right at the beginning, it says, uh, by Jim Emerson. Oh, man, that's cheating. It is. The one the thing that clued me into, wait a minute, is this Roger Ebert? Was that's a really long? I know. I was just about to say it's too long, it's and it doesn't long. have that nice, you know, short version of an Ebert review. Ebert's, Ebert's like it out. He tells you what he feels. He's done it. Six Works to eight hundred words, no preamble. Gets in there, gets the job done. Yep. Gets out. Movie was nominated and won several Raspberry Awards. <laughs> uh, if that means anything to you, I don't know. Uh, I don't care for the raspberries. I think they're snobs, but you know, of note. And this is definitely where Shyamalan lost most of his fans i think there were still like every the last few movies there were you're losing a little bit of people a little bit and there's still people holding on mm-hmm. but this is the movie where it was just like most everyone was like you know what I'm, I'm done here i don't think i can continue with this anymore um why is that it's not a very good movie it's, it's very, very, very good bad. movie it's, it's pretentious uh it is kind of the plot seems contrived and hard to follow and it, it seems to have these big 
big goals that it just doesn't achieve. Like it's it's aiming for this like uh, ET level of uh, you know, message of hope and inspiration that's gonna magically touch the lives of everyone that watches it. Yeah, which you can't really plan for. But there was the hope, uh, and so we also read The Man Who Heard Voices, the yes. brilliant book about the making of this film that was released when the movie was released. So it ends on this high note of, well, the whole book is like everyone is aiming to make the greatest movie of their careers is what it feels like. They're like, oh, man, like Shyamalan is really, this is his his most important movie. They keep talking about how it's the most important thing he's ever done. But Shyamalan uh, became aware that uh, with the village, it didn't have anything supernatural in it. So there was nothing for people to believe in. It was like cynical. Other people thought it was cynical. He thought it was about questioning authority. <laughs> so he wanted to give people something to believe in again. So he gave him this bedtime story about hope and changing the world. And it literally was a bedtime story. It's based on a series of bedtime stories he told his kids. That his kids loved. Who knows how many nights he told it. There shouldn't be a clue that it's what you're telling people to make them fall asleep. I feel that should have been a red flag right there. But based on a bedtime story, uh, he dedicates the movie to them, tells them it's time for bed, you know. And uh, it, it, it just it feels kind of like someone making up a bedtime story. It's, it's like it's very misguided and it loses focus. And sadly... And strangely for Shyamalan, it is not very cinematic, which is crazy because it's shot by Christopher, Christopher Doyle, Doyle, who's one of the, who's maybe the greatest cinematographer of all time, who did all the Wong Kar Wai films like In the Mood for Love and uh, Chunking Express. And, but the movie is all uh, exposition. Like the whole movie is just people talking about what it's what they're going to do, what they're doing, what this story is, what's a narv, what's a scrunt. And it's really just people in rooms talking about kind of like all trying to figure out what's going on and more and more people are added. So you have scenes where it's literally like 20 people like crammed in the frame, all trying to figure out what they're doing. It's not fun. Like clue where it's like, Oh, it's people in the room talking and, or not rope, you know, it's not based on a play. It doesn't have this fun, you know, story to it. It really is just like this scene's about exposition. This it's like really like every it's, it's, it's tell not show. Whereas in the past, all the Shyamalan movies have been very cinematic and been able to tell you things with just imagery. Whereas this one really is just like people talking about what's happening That's, until it's over. And there it's were so no, boring. There were no big visual moments in this film. Like even The Village, which we didn't care for, still had the scene, one great visual scene where the Walking Phoenix character gets stabbed. I mean, it's, which is like great pure you know, filmmaking, pure cinema. And you still had like the location of this, vi this village in the middle of the woods. And you had like the costumes of the thing, but this movie literally takes place in cramped apartments. And then occasionally around a swimming pool and that's it. They never leave the apartment, which is fine if you can make the movie interesting <laughs> and cinematic, but it just isn't there. Like there's a few shots where it's like, Oh, the camera's way high up over the pool and look at all these people. And it has this kind of like, nice foggy kind of you know nighttime look to it but it ultimately just feels very empty and there is no magic like this couldn't ever be like et because et takes you on a journey where you're like oh i'm with this kid who finds this alien and now we're like introducing the alien to things in his house but then they leave the house then he goes to school and they fly in the air and this one it really is just like it feels so flat 
it's, it's definitely like the least cinematic of all Shyamalan movies, including his early two movies that weren't the best <laughs> movies. It's such a shame because you have Christopher Doyle shooting your movie and you brought him in to do his Christopher Doyle thing. Like Shyamalan wanted this film to have like the smoky look of In the Mood for Love. So he hired the guy that shot In the Mood for Love. But that guy is crazy and wanted to shoot it like Wong Kar Wai movies where he would just let the camera drift around and sometimes focus on like someone's watch you know, <laughs> while the characters are talking. And Shyamalan didn't like that and yet to try and rein in Chris Doyle who is maybe crazy. <laughs> maybe crazy. And when you read the book, The Man Who Versus, there's a lot of really good Christopher Doyle Stories, a lot of stories of him grabbing genitals and like just like getting really drunk and just seems like a true wild man. <laughs> Though he showed up on work on time every day. Every day, yeah. Oh, but going back to the book, so the book came out when the movie came out. So the book ends with this high note of we did a test screening. It tested through the roof. It tested better than the sixth sense. We've all made it. The vision is complete. We've got to hit our hands. The end. <laughs> and of course, that didn't happen. And who knows what crazy paid off test audience they had but it wasn't actually well, what the audience was wasn't that test audience uh like at his house like at his like private theater that seems right so really it? it's like the same problem that you have with film festivals like when people go to fantastic fest and they see the movie and the director's there and the actor's there and there was a party and, and you got a free people, sandwich and you're the, the first, first people to see, to see it. it and so it doesn't matter how awful 21 jump street actually is you leave it being like, that was the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. And then everyone else who sees it's like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, like, I didn't get the free sandwich, so I don't know. I like 21 Jump Street, <laughs> but there are numerous other films uh, where, yes, that is absolutely <laughs> the case. So I think, yeah, I think they were just happy to be in, in his house. Like, wouldn't you? You'd be excited. And that would add to the excitement of a movie. And I'm sure he gave a great introduction to, like, what it meant to him or whatever. But, oh, man, as an actual movie... It's yeah. It's really boring. It's like I think that's his biggest flaw is that it's really, really boring. It feels like not a lot happens in it because it is mostly exposition and explaining all these rules about the Narf world and the story of story. And Bryce Dallas Howard as the magical Narf doesn't really do much. She sits and she cries and she sits. And she kind of looks sad. And that's kind of it. Like, she just sort of sits in a weakened state She reminded, the whole movie. <laughs> she reminded me of a, like, okay, so a character that uh, isn't really uh, very uh, vocal, uh, that just is there to kind of get dragged around a lot, even though the story, is, uh, she's essential to the story. It reminded me of Minority Report. Uh, Tom Cruise is dragging Agatha, the precog, around, mm -hmm. and she doesn't really talk a lot. But that actress and her part in that story, like, you could feel the importance. And then when she finally does talk to Tom Cruise, you feel this, like, profound emotion when she's telling him about his, about his son. And there wasn't really a moment like that here. Yeah. Another movie this made me think of uh, was Adaptation. How so? So in Adaptation, Nicolas Cage is trying to write this uh, movie 
about flowers based on a book. And he visits uh, Robert McKee. And Robert McKee, played wonderfully by Brian Cox, uh, tells him, like, he actually gives him some advice and says, like, you know, oh, like, and don't you dare, you know, use a deus ex machina in this movie. And Charlie Kaufman's saying he doesn't want to, like, he doesn't want to throw in, like, drugs and car chases and the love story and all this artificial uh, stuff just to spice up this, like, nice, simple, true story. But then, in the end, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and there is a deus ex machina. And it's great. It's an amazing, <laughs> wonderful meta film that says, these things are bad. Bad movies have these things. And then it does them well. In this film, you have Bob Balaban as the critic, like, just lambasting movies and stories, structure in general, and like, oh, this romantic comedy like ended in the rain why do movies have to end in the rain and paul giovanni's character says oh it, maybe it represents uh you know uh purity and cleansing <laughs> she <laughs> says jim giovanni delivers that line really well uh in like an aside he says to himself and then the scene where bob balaban dies when he uh is confronted by the the scrunt <laughs> and he realizes like oh i'm in this kind of movie so these things are going to happen and i'm gonna get away but then he doesn't get away yeah and then in the end it ends in the rain <laughs> there's big emotional revelations and it, do it does everything that it has kind of been uh alluding to beforehand but it doesn't work it's like this almost meta story but it doesn't get there. Just like I think his intention was to make it kind of funny, and it's never really funny. <laughs> and it does. <laughs> but I think it's supposed to be. It's like there's funny. that really weird scene where Paul Giamatti has the milk mustache and he lays down like a child to listen to the story about the scraps and the narf. And it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't fit at all. And I'm guessing it's supposed to be funny, but it's just weird. It's very, very weird that scene. Yeah, the humor in this movie doesn't really work like that scene it just feels odd because the whole movie is so somber so serious just like the same problem with the village that when these humorous humorous moments show up i can't like process them <laughs> like the freddie rodriguez character who only exercises one side of his body so he has a huge arm and a huge leg and then a skinny arm and a skinny leg and that's so odd it's so bizarre but literally nothing happens with it at all. If he, well, at the end, he turns out to be the actual guardian. He turns out to be the guardian, but the guardian... But he doesn't punch anything with his big hand. No, like, like the guardian's power is that if they look into the scrunt's eyes, it becomes paralyzed. So he just has to stare down the scrunt. Yeah. But he doesn't have to like use his big arm. It's so odd. Like That should be in like a Coen Brothers movie. It, why and i think that's that's uh with all due respect that is maybe the most memorable thing about this movie i feel like if you remember lady in the water it's gonna be like oh like isn't that the movie where it has this guy that arm? only like works out <laughs> one side of his body so he has this huge arm and it's also um the the whole idea of it of making up this own fairy tale there's never a point where it's really sold to you as a thing. It's never like, even like the lesser fantasy movies that exist in the world, 
you don't you like like a legend or something like that. Like you still kind of get an idea for the world and you kind of get wrapped up into this fantasy world a little bit. Or definitely like very much so in like a dark crystal or even splash, you know. But in this one, you just never quite first off, it doesn't make any sense. Like, did I miss it? But like there's a scene where Paul Giamatti goes up to the, the Korean girl and is like, What's a narf? Is there a part before that where they talk about a narf? Does, does Bryce Dallas Howard say I'm a narf? Because it really feels out of nowhere. I think Bryce Dallas Howard does say that. And then why would he think this lady would know what it is? Like, oh, this lady. She would know. And then the lady does know what it is. And then it's this whole story. And, like, you never – like, Shyamalan, in the manner of voice, he talks about, like, I want it to feel like – when it's talked about the girls, like, oh, yeah, it's like Red Riding Hood. Like, how do you not know what a narf is? But the problem is it's not like Red Riding Hood because nobody's ever heard what a narf is. So it's very strange that this hell of a sudden, like, within that apartment complex, you found someone who knew about this thing that no one's ever heard of, that no one's ever talked about. Like, if it was just about a mermaid living in a pool, then that would actually would be more believable because then you'd be like, I know what a mermaid is, and you bring that to the table, this, this knowledge of what the mythology of a mermaid is, but this one makes it all, all this new stuff up, which is fine for a movie to do, but it never sells it in a way that's believable within the world because it's just so strange that there's people that know about it. Yeah. And it's uh, the Korean uh, girl's mother. Like, you know, she knows a story backwards and forwards, but she only speaks Korean. So uh, the girl, I can't remember her name, but she, (laughs) it's like Cindy Chung, I think is the actress's name. She has to translate. Oh, and one of the people they need for is like a seer or an interpreter. Mm -hmm. And you think like, well, it's going to be this girl because she literally translates the story. Yeah. But no, it's somebody else. Yeah. Um, When she's translating and it's one of these things that just kind of bugged me is uh, when the mother is telling the story in Korean she never says the word narf. Like if this is an Eastern story, like that word is not an English. It's not an like, English word. It's like not it's a not, Western word. It, it's definitely like well, it's not an Eastern it's word. word but where she would have said it otherwise. So yeah. it presumes this like uh, English language equivalent of a of a narf. Yeah, exists. Yeah, the way like. Uh, you say, like, the Japanese word for monster is bakimono. Yeah. So, like, but that word, <laughs> if someone's talking about a monster and they're Japanese, they're going to say that word. Yeah. But the Korean mother never says the word narf, which is just kind of weird since it's a Korean, it's it's an Eastern story. Yeah. Anyway, this movie, because it didn't build up its world enough, it leaves itself open to nitpicking little <laughs> things like that. <laughs> And it's also very strange that not not just that this lady knows what this is and that her mom knows what it is, but no character in the movie at all is weirded out or thinks it's weird that any of this stuff is happening no, at all. That's, I think that's a big problem. <laughs> very... That's a big problem with this movie <laughs> is that Paul Giamatti accepts story story within uh-huh. like a day. <laughs> like immediately, there's no scenes of like, oh, this crazy lady, I've got to. I need to call nine one one. There's like a moment at the beginning where it's like, should I call an ambulance? Should I call, did you know where you're from? Like, can I, is there a place I can take you? And then she's like, no, I'm a lady who lives in the water and the scrunts and I'm an arf and there's an eagle. And he's like, oh, okay, great. I guess I got to figure out this, you know, these codes about your life and like how you get to the eagle. 
And then any person he asks or brings in immediately accepts. So then there's all these people in the apartment just being like, okay, Narf, like, how are we going to help you get to the Eagle? Like, there's nobody being like, what, what the like, fuck is what? this? This is crazy. What? Like, it are feels you saying to me? Like, he was <laughs> aiming for a, like, Frank Capra-esque uh, type vibe where everyone just bands together in this crazy plan to, like, save a bank but or it's saving save a, another bank. A mystical creature. <laughs> or <laughs> or there's, there's one uh, Frank Capra movie where... A bunch of uh, poor street people, they band together to make one of them seem like uh, she's a rich society lady. And just every person they approach this idea with, even like other rich people, they're like, of course I'll help. (laughs) There's no resistance to it at all. And because Frank Capra is making films in a different era, you can believe that sentiment uh, it's much more easy to accept. Yeah, but you lose like, and there's no fantastical elements in Frank Capra's. Like, what makes Close Encounters of the Third Kind or ET or even Jaws great is there's always a part of people being like, "You're joking, right? No, this isn't real." Like, or or the what the fuck moment of like, oh, "What are you? What is this? Like, what? Like, huh? Like the flabbergasted people, you know, in those movies, the people that don't believe the other people or the people that are so shocked." When they first see ET, it blows their damn mind. Because it would. It would blow your mind. And this one, everyone's just really, like, without even hesitation, like, they'll meet story the first time ever. And they'll just be like, how can I help you figure out how to get you to this eagle and fight this grunt? Like, there's never a point of anyone questioning anyone. There's, like, I think, yeah, you have a few hesitations from, from Cleveland at the beginning. But it's not much. He still keeps her in his house. He's still taking care of her. And I think that's a big factor to make the movie not have this kind of magical fantasy feel to it is because everyone's like oh i guess we're gonna help this thing in the water now. in 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 that way there's no stand-in for the audience for you the normal average person that doesn't live in a magical world who mm-hmm. if presented with this weird magical thing would uh have some resistance to it but nobody resists it so you just kind of feel left out yeah <laughs> But that is only one of many problems. Yeah, this movie, uh, this movie, we can... Let's talk about the cast, and then we can segue to a certain <laughs> cast member. Uh, this movie has an amazing cast. It's got Paul Giamatti, Bryce Dallas Howard as your leads, has Bob Balaban, Jeffrey Wright, as Jared Harris, mm-hmm. has uh, Freddie Rodriguez, Mary Beth Hurt, uh... Shyamalan's character's sister is played by Sarita Chudri. Uh, she was in Mississippi Masala, and she's great in that movie, and that's a great movie that I highly recommend. Uh, Bill Irwin, this character actor, who you probably recognize from Rachel Getting Married. That's what I recognize him from. Tova Feldsha. She always plays the Jewish mother in movies. Okay. Oh, she's the one in the apartment. Yeah. That's another character I mentioned. There's a lady... Whose husband's always going to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's uh, Cindy Chung, who hadn't done much before this, but has gone on, I think, to be on like House of Cards or something. Uh, but she was really good. And uh, the ca- and it does nothing, nothing with Jared Harris barely has lines in this movie. It's very strange. It's almost like they hired him and then afterwards realized, like, oh, that's Richard Harris's son. Oh, you're the actor. I guess he just plays a stone in this. Because then he went on to be great in Mad Men. Yeah. You know, he had already been great in, like, Happiness. Mr. Deeds. 
Mr. <laughs> Mr. Deeds was before this. Playing like the Rupert Murdoch type character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Jared Harris was already a uh, well-known indie serious film actor guy. It made me think like like Jared Harris, Bob Balaban, Jeffrey Wright, Bill Irwin, like wasn't there a play these guys could have been in <laughs> instead I, of this movie where they barely had any lines and barely did anything? I think when your agent's on the phone and he's like, hey, I got the new Shyamalan script. I think at the time that still meant something. I think it was still... After this movie, that definitely didn't mean as much. But I think at the time, I was like, oh, well, that's going to be... A, that'll, that'll be a movie a lot of people It'll at least like, be I think big. That'll be big. Like, I should put that on hold. I put other things on hold and do that, you know? I'm sure their agents are pushing, like, you got to do the Shyamalan movie, man. Like, this is a good thing. We won't go into the whole history of how the movie was made. Read the book. It is a whole long thing of he brought it to Disney. They didn't get it. Shyamalan was frustrated. He, uh, he was like, 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 it was like his vision. Like, no one got his vision. And there's a lot of that in the book of him just being, and no, they no, I know it's good. I know it's good. And then being like, there's problems with this. And they ended up being right. <laughs> they ended up being right. And Disney never <laughs> right. said, we don't want to make this movie. They said... We're not going to give you eighty million. We'll give you sixty million. And he was like, "No, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, the stuff about the pre-production and even the stuff about the making of, of the actual movie. It's all it's all very interesting stuff. If you're interested in movie <laughs> movies or movie making, I do recommend giving you the read. Though I will say, it is a very poorly written book. It's written by what's what's the author's name? Michael Bamberger. A uh, Sports Illustrated writer. Maybe he writes sports articles well, but I really hate nonfiction books where it puts thoughts into people's heads where it's like, you don't know what that person was thinking. But like, there's a part, a very famous, notorious part of the book where it's told from the point of view of like Shyamalan's assistant as she's bringing the physical copy of Lady in the Water script to Disney. And it's her on a plane wondering like, if the people on the plane only knew what I had, like if they only knew what was amongst them on this airplane and this whole thing where it's going into their mind and the whole book does that, like where it's kind of jumping into even Shemla, like this is what he's thinking. He's like, well, this is what, you can't write that. You don't know that unless they actually turn to you every time and be like, I'm thinking this right now, but it's, <laughs> it reads a lot into things and it's, but it's easy to read. It's large print. Evenly spaced. Yeah, it's like it's like less <laughs> yeah. than three hundred. You can. It's a good airplane read, actually. Like you can easily fly through this whole book in three and a half hours. I know I did. Um, so the big problems with this movie that was repeated by all people who hated it are a few, are, uh, a few things. Stuff we've already covered, but the two main ones. First one is with this film critic character. It was basically Shyamalan's way of getting back at the film critics that kind of were horrible towards the village, Roger Ebert included. Yeah. Uh, and so you have like the only kind of evil person character in the movie. And he's not even evil. Just the, 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 he's a dick that nobody likes is the stuffy film slash book critic. And yes, there's the part where he explains sort of, he look, it's basically him. He looks at the camera and is telling you like all these rules of a movie and then he gets killed. But then the problem I have is that later on, so then Paul Giamatti, during that moment, Cleveland's character has this epiphany of like, wait a minute, I asked a film critic like who the people should be, and he misled me, and like what kind of what kind of a creep would do that, you know, film critic, the person who would like who'd say who would say they would know everything about how a thing works. What what's the exact quote? It's like yeah. how dare someone? How dare he presume to know the intentions of another human being? And this is a jab at film criticism. 
But the thing about that is he was actually right. He, the film critic did not mislead him. He told him exactly the type of person he needs to look for. Yeah, he didn't. It's just Paul Giamatti's character grabbed the wrong people. Exactly. So has the film critic actually was exactly telling him the correct type of person he needs to find. Because he was like, oh, Gil, that should be a group of people that hang out together, that talk a lot about the same thing. But Cleveland mistakenly think it's the stoners when, in fact, it's the group of Hispanic sisters. Yeah, they're always together. They all yeah. hold hands for like That's most of That's not the film scenes. critic's fault. That's Cleveland's fault yeah. for picking the wrong people. It comes the off- film critic doesn't say it's these guys. Paul Giamatti makes the assumption it's those guys. And so to blame the film critic for this whole misdirection is completely false. It's completely false. It's it's overly it's overly defensive. It's like preemptively defensive. It feels very very petty, and it feels like even worse than the uh, the Mayor Ebert gag in the Godzilla, <laughs> Godzilla. movie. Oh man! Just like oh, we just named this character Ebert, and he's like a <laughs> clueless dick that doesn't know what he's talking about. But in this, to like. How dare he presume <laughs> to know the intentions? <laughs> like, look, man, like you're making art and some people can like it, some people aren't. Like, you just have to deal with that. It's certainly not gonna get film critics more on your side from here out to do that with your film in the most obvious hit in the head with a frying pan way. Like it, it never uh, works when the uh, movies blast critics in there. Like it doesn't work in Birdman. Yeah, it's it's it feels truly unnecessary. Only the show The Critic can get away with making fun of critics. Yeah, and still be funny and good. It it's a great <laughs> it's a great show about movies. So then that leads to who else would say they would know everything about a movie? Well, a screenwriter would, of course, and a director. And in this case, M Night Shyamalan is both, but he's also the character of the writer whose writing is so important. It saves and changes the entire course of the world's history. I can just picture yeah. him writing and be like, I wonder who should play this character. Yeah, I so guess me. <laughs> Shyamalan's character, Vic, I think, is writing this book. It's called The Cookbook. So Cleveland at first thinks, oh, it's a cookbook, which is crazy because no cookbook has ever been called The Cookbook. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, he's writing this book with radical ideas about leaders. So it's more like the anarchist cookbook, <laughs> if you would. But uh, he is not going to change the world. But one day, someone's going to read his book, and that person will change the world. And that, I kind of like that idea. Like, that is, you know, like the... Adam Smith writes The Wealth of Nations, or Karl Marx writes The Communist Manifesto, which changed the world in uh, a bad way. But, yeah, so... <laughs> Says I, I like, you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, uh, that idea of indirectly changing the world. But then uh, he casts himself to be the writer that's going to change the world. And then cue Christ's imagery. He must sacrifice his own life. For it to happen, (laughs) to make the world a better place, he must die. He will be killed for his ideas, so story says. Yeah, and he's going to play, uh, like, a young boy is going to read this book. Uh, It should be Jeffrey Wright's son should be the boy that reads uh, this book. Because he'll have a reason to read a book by, like, this unknown author. Yeah. 
Anyway, it, that would have been a better way to connect this all together. <laughs> there, the whole movie could have been tightened up in neater, but I think you're at the point now where Shyamalan doesn't have anyone telling him that he needs to make it tightened up or neater. I think he's sort of like on his own path, and people are just like, "You're brilliant," you know. And you have Disney people be like, "I don't get it," and any other writer would be like, "Oh, you don't get it. Let me." figure out how to work this in a way that makes more sense and makes it clearer, makes it more according to your notes. Like every writer gets notes, but he was just so offended. They just didn't get it in general, that he had to take it away from Disney and go somewhere else. This script feels like it should have used a few more passes uh, on it. I think so. Uh, which is shocking from him because like his other scripts, even the movies that I don't like as much like signs or the village do feel complete. They do feel like his complete vision. But this one is feel, it just feels sloppy. And one's um, not, you know, he's not a professional actor, and he gives himself this pretty substantial role. part. And it's a very serious part, and it, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't <laughs> work. Like, when David Lynch casts himself in Twin Peaks, his character has to yell all the time. So you can't tell whether he's a good actor or not. You can't it's, tell. Funny. <laughs> it's a great way to cover it. Like, yeah. you know, Hitchcock made cameos, never really acted. Truffaut, like, knew what he was doing. And Truffaut, who made Day for Night, he directed this movie where he played a director directing the movie, uh, but he's not the central character in it. It's an ensemble piece. Uh, like, he's not... the pretentious uh at, at all like you can be you can write yourself into a movie yeah. and be in it and and not have it be uh what like solipsistic yeah. and i think shadowland is a good actor it's just it's very poor choice to cast yourself as this type of role it's like when you see a movie where the director's like i know i'm the guy who gets to sleep with the attractive actress you know woody allen problem <laughs> like yeah. Who should be the one who does like who goes off with Mariel <laughs> Hemingway? It should be I, Woody Allen. And it's a movie just, where me, me, a seventy-year-old neurotic man, <laughs> has to choose between uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, Tiffany Amberthesen, or uh, Helen Hunt. Yeah, or like Tarantino in From Dust Till Dawn, though he didn't direct it, he wrote it. But it's like I'm the one who will like drink alcohol from the foot of Selma Hayek. <laughs> That is like you might come on, like you can't, like, you can't like just have a little bit of awareness to know that we're all going to go groan, eye roll. A few other nitpicky things of the movie. Uh, man, Paul Giamatti's character can sure hold his breath a long time yeah. going underwater. And like I've seen movies where people like I'm going underwater, and you have James Bond swim around or Tom Cruise or whatever. But number one, it's Tom Cruise, you know, or Sean Connery, so it's more of this buff hero. Going underwater, and even then, it's maybe at most two minutes. But these are people who work for the government or their government, so they're trained to do such things as hold their breath for a long time. Paul Giamatti is a is Paul Giamatti. He's a pudgy, you know, out of shape, super of an apartment complex, and yet he can hold his breath for like five minutes, even before he <laughs> he, he takes uh, he takes a little water, a little water samples yeah. from the jars. Even before that, it's a long time. That's the only scene. Where we get some idea of like the Narf world, where mm-hmm. you go, he swims into Story's lair, where she has all the things Bottles. that she's taken, which really reminded me of um, <laughs> of the Little Mermaid. <laughs> she had thingamabobs. <laughs> how long? What's your How long was she supposed to have been living down there? 
And I still don't understand. So where does she go? Like, just why does she have to leave? Why? Where does the eagle take her heaven? Like, where does where does she go? It doesn't make any sense. Another planet, another dimension. <laughs> and why does she have to go? Like, and what was accomplished? It seems like the scrunts and these things were brought there by her. So, like, what is she saving these people? So, it's like, she's go- is, it, is it is he going there just to tell Shemelon he needs to finish his book to save the world? Is that the only reason why she's there? Is it because of that? And then she, go- and then her, then her accomplishment is done. And then why don't the scrunts at any point in the movie go after Shemelon to kill him so he doesn't write his book? Instead, it goes after the film critic and like you know it goes comes you know and, and story. Yeah. So I it's, like, it's really complicated. Or just maybe it's just poorly. It's not complicated. It's just really poorly figured out. Where I, I'm so confused because as to exactly there, what the story of this movie. There is. There's so many rules to this uh, fictional story world that everyone seems to understand uh, right away, except for me, the viewer. <laughs> and at, at a certain point, I feel like all of this, all of these rules, should have just been written down. And shown to me at the beginning, <laughs> like the like the scroll to the Star Wars prequels movie, where you have to read this boring thing about a trade federation before you can enjoy the movie. <laughs> or it should be like Gremlins, where really someone being like, "Here are the rules," and then people are like, "Oh, I get it," and then they don't understand quite, and they break the rules. And the rules of there and they fuck and, fu- and they fuck up, and all the rules have consequences. And you're like, "Don't feed them after midnight. Don't get them wet." And don't no expose them to the light. And you're like, okay, I get that. And it's no different than the rules of like a vampire gets killed by a stake in the heart, doesn't like garlic, can't go in the daytime. You can understand those rules. It's like no different than like the rules of when you own a dog. Don't feed it chocolate. Don't let it run off without a leash. Blah blah blah. But you have scr- but, you have scrunts that go after narfs, but they won't go after a narf. They won't go after a madam narf, like how which is what story is supposed to be, unless. It's uh like unless it is a Madame Narf, and then the scroll hit, hit like a really bad one. He'll go rogue and he'll go after the <laughs> Madame Narf, but it's against the rules of the tree. And then when it breaks the rules, the tree might. And it's like, what is going on here? Like, this what? is too much. And don't like don't give these things too many names. Like the more you name things and explain them in, in this fictional fantastical world, it just makes it seem kind of lame. And you check out your mind checks out. Like, none Narf, of this. Like, none of this matters. On. And also having the movie be like, these are all the people do this. Oh, wait, no, it's other people. Okay, we got to do this again. And you're like, oh, why am I doing this again? After I saw this movie, when I saw this movie in the theaters, which uh, until this podcast was the only time I had seen it, someone asked me, like, so what's the twist? I said, like, I don't think there is one, but I think it's they, like, think they need people to do these things, but it turns out they need other people. Yeah, not and that's it, the twist. Where it's like, oh, we we're wrong. It's not these guys. It's these guys. It doesn't hit you as much as he was dead the whole time. Yeah, which is fine. I'm glad that you know he's trying not to do just a twist at the end, like he's done with every of his big movies before this. I just wish it was a better movie. And I'm also again, I've seen this movie three times now, and I'm so confused by the scene. Like, explain this to me. I've seen this three times. I don't get it. Why can't Paul Giamatti talk to? Bryce tells Howard in the shower, why does he have to go through this for this kind of telephone game where he talks to Shyamalan's sister who does this whole hand gesture thing? Why does that happen? It's weird. Why can't she answer the questions and why can't he be in the same room as her? one of the rules is she can't talk about herself or her world or whatever. So, but then I'm, 
I was there the whole time. I was paying attention the whole time, but I missed why he couldn't be there in the room with her. I don't know if it's because she was in the shower. But then they all run and look at her wet. in the shower, you know, like 30 minutes later. But that scene, I feel like, like that was the closest thing to being like, oh, it's going to try and be a, a cinematic moment where Paul Giamatti is standing outside the bathroom and then he asks a question. Yeah. And then Story gives this like weird, uh, like kind of sign language type thing. Yeah. And then, uh, but then uh, Shyamalan's sister has to interpret that and then tell Giamatti. But it's ridiculous because it's like, it still counts as communicating. Are you telling me that people who are deaf that do sign language aren't communicating because they're not talking? It's, or if you speak a different language as someone else, it doesn't, it's different. So it's like her doing a language through like touching her ears. It's still the language. That's still the language. That's still communicating. Like touching her chin. So if she can't say it out loud, why doesn't she write the words on a piece of paper or draw a picture if it really comes to it? It reminded me of It doesn't make any sense. Reminded me of like when a parent needs to get something out of a kid and the kid's like, I promise I won't. Well that's what the character says. That's what the lady says. Like this is the what I came up with not tattle. Okay. But it still doesn't make any sense because it's like, okay, if she can say yes by tugging her left or right ear or tapping her elbow, that's still communicating. Like why That's communicating. Why so that that they, is the language. Why couldn't they hold up like like a, an elf puppet and be like, hey, oh, I'm talking to this. Or write, draw a picture. And then like, and then I feel like the whole thing was just because it was like this gimmicky idea that Shemela had of like, he's over here and this lady's here and they get this and the camera goes over like a De Palma shot. You know, from the shower to outside, right? Doesn't it do that at one time? Yeah. Doesn't it do like yeah, it a De Palma over the room shot. And, uh, but it just feels like he was so excited with the gimmick. He didn't bother to think that it doesn't make any sense. Like, is it just because he's shy that she's naked in the shower? I don't believe that. Like, I think that's ridiculous. Like, and then why can't she just be throwing a towel? And then communicating through pointing and touching in a, you know, like a hand gesture language is still a language that's still communicating. And so it's all bullshit. <laughs> Did you notice that uh, as Bryce Dallas Howard's character got like sicker, her hair became more blonde? No, I like didn't she started that. out as a redhead, and then like the longer she spent out of her world, her hair became like blonde. No, yeah, that's just a weird. Thing no, I didn't noticed. notice that. Huh. Um, so that whole apartment complex was built from the ground up. It's crazy. It it's looks crazy. like a real apartment complex. That's probably the best thing about the whole movie. It's, uh, it's very believably. It's the same way Hitchcock built complex. a real apartment complex for Rear Window. As I was watching this movie about a man that finds this mythical, beautiful woman in his pool, made me think, wait, this sounds, it seems kind of familiar. It sounds like the premise of this movie called My Date with an Angel from 1987, starring Phoebe Cates and Emmanuel Bear, or Bear, I don't know how you say her name. Uh, but it's about this, uh, uh, an injured angel falls into a soon-to-be-married man's swimming pool, and uh, like 80s misunderstandings ensue. It's not <laughs> a good movie. I remember Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down. No. Uh, Ebert gave it a thumbs up only because you should go see it to see the beautiful face of Emmanuel Bear. Classic Ebert and review. And Siskel looked at him disgustingly and <laughs> said, just look at a picture of her rocker. <laughs> Ebert loved to give higher ratings to the Cindy Final Lady Attractive. That's why he liked the Cindy Crawford movie, Fair Game. <laughs> Was like, she's pretty, you know, she's hot. 
And then Siskel just shaking his head, being like, oh, Roger, come on, get over it. In uh, <laughs> uh, Ebert's review of The Princess Diaries, he talks about like the, the makeover montage they do, which is ludicrous, because Anne Hathaway is a beauty in the tradition of Daphne Zuniga. <laughs> if you go read his review for the sure what? thing, if you read his review for the sure thing, he's like in love with Daphne Zuniga. Wait, wait, but does he drop Daphne Zuniga's name in the Princess Diaries? Yes, review? he does. That's like twelve years too late for anyone to care who Daphne Zuniga is. You know, what was the last thing she did? Melrose Place. Probably. It was like ninety four, maybe ninety five. And Princess Diaries is what two thousand three to maybe yeah two thousand two. That's insane. That just means he thought Daphne Zuniga was hot, and he was thought about it, and then he thought the way it was hot. That old horn dog, yeah. Roger Ebert, makes sense. He wrote for Russ Meyer. Yeah. Man, shameless. Uh, yeah. So there's another movie with a similar premise <laughs> out there. Yeah. We work at a video store. I, I just have to point out something like that. Um, is that it for this movie? Can we move on? <laughs> Basically, uh, I like James Newton Howard did the score as always. Not memorable. I think it's his least memorable score. There's nothing to latch onto. Doesn't he like the beautiful, like the the village? The best part about that movie was the score. Yeah, yeah, the haunting nothing violin here. based score. Here, the score it, it's a lot of like it has a lot of like choral chanting in it. Like it wants to be like uh, almost like church ethereal music. Mm-hmm. And then the film ends with a uh, really, really slow cover of the times they are at changing. Really bad cover. Really bad changing. cover. It sounds I, like it, it's broken. Like this movie's broken and it's yeah. breaking down. And it, it feels like uh, like the the music in this movie, incidental and otherwise, uh, seemed to be at like I don't know, going for like an Enya vibe. Yeah, which a lot of movies at the time were doing. Like just before this, you had the Lord of the Rings movies had a little Enya vibe to some of its music. Soon after this, you have Avatar. Wasn't which one had had an actual Enya song? Was it Avatar? That was Lord of the Rings. Or was that Lord of the Rings? Yeah, she. I think she won best original song. Did like sing year. a song? Yeah, it has that kind of Enya kind of lady singing, pretty, and the music's kind of rising sort of thing. Especially when the eagle flies away, that part has a big kind of feel to that, like an Enya feel to it. Uh, the one one thing before we uh, wrap this up that I wanted to mention, which was, did you catch when at the very beginning, and uh, Paul Giamatti is like, he's working on the pool or whatever, and he tells someone, like, you know there's no swimming after, after 7, or the pool closes at 7. At 7 p.m.? That's way too early. It's still bright outside in the summer. But yeah, August, you're really going to be like, we have three more hours of sunlight, get inside, 7 Like, o'clock. no one can swim at dusk? Like, what is up with that? It's... He's an awful landlord. He's the worst. <laughs> um, so another thing we should mention, we, uh, we should wrap this up in a few minutes, but uh, another thing we should mention is around this time, Shemelin also directed and starred in an American Express commercial. And if you haven't seen the commercial, here's the premise. Shyamalan sitting in a diner, noticing, just picking up, just with his artist's eye, all the strange goings on within this diner. You have kind of like a man with like a mutated face, like his face is kind of pulsating. You have a lady who eats a fly. Uh, There's a lady with like telekinesis. Uh, There's a dude who looks like the bad guy from the first Da Vinci Code, or he's like bald, (laughs) albino with weird you know like uh you know 
tattoos on his body. Um, there's some people that were ghosts, and you're kind of seeing like through his point of view, like kind of the like this is what it's like to be Shyamalan. He just sees crazy, you know, different things than you do. And then this lady comes up, is like, I'm a fan, I'm a huge fan, and he kind of brushes it off, like, yeah, yeah, thanks, lady. And then that's the over, and he says, like, I'm a creative genius, and here I use American Express. That's basically what it's <laughs> it, about. It, it, it was, uh, <laughs> it was like, my life is about this. My card is American Express. And it's it, like, my life is about finding time to dream. Yeah, and so at the end, he goes into a diner. Is that a different diner, or is it we supposed to think there's two Shemalons? Because um, at the end, he's showing walking in, being like, right. "Hello, I'm I'm at Shyamalan," and you're like, "Well, is he? Are we supposed to think like, wait a minute, we already saw him? Who's this? Or is it just like he's going to another restaurant again?" It just did, that didn't really make a lot of sense. The better one, Wes Anderson did one, and it's great. Wes Anderson has the best. <laughs> it's of those it's really really funny, and it feels very much like his movies, but it's really clever and it's really tongue in cheek, and it's amazing. This one was just came off as kind of pretentious and yes. self aware in a bad way. And I feel like this commercial and the book about the man who heard voices and his movie is sort of the beginning of an unchecked ego from Shyamalan in a really bad way, which is going to mm-hmm. kind of bleed into the next two movies. We're going to talk about like The Happening and um, The Last Airbender and stuff like that, where you're really going to get – where he's just doing his thing, but there's no one there being like, tone it down, man. Slow it down. You're not – maybe you're not in for Hitchcock. Maybe that's okay. Maybe don't think about that even when you make a movie and just make something else that's true to you. And you're not Steven Spielberg either. That's okay. Just do a Shyamalan movie. But it's like you're kind of in this spot of like, I am great. I am the greatest. I'm important. People know who I am. People know who I am. If you have a vision that you believe in and somebody is like, like, I don't get it. Or like, hey, look, man, I don't get it. But look, I'll I'll give you 60 million instead of 80. (laughs) <laughs> and you're like, no, I have a vision, and you know, you believe in yourself that much. Like sometimes, it, sometimes it, it, it's good, and you're Orson Welles, and you make Citizen Kane, <laughs> and you're like, I'm, I'm a genius, and I'm gonna do all of these things, <laughs> and I'm gonna do it my way. <laughs> and sometimes it works, and I feel like it's just kind of a coincidence as to whether someone's uh, incredible belief in themselves and the and an incredible result line up. Yeah. I think it's all chance. It's a chance. Like, are you an actual genius, or is everyone telling you you're a genius? And you're like, yeah, I am a genius. You know, like Kanye West. Uh, <laughs> but And in the book, The Man Who Voices is constantly, he's comparing himself to Bob Dylan and Michael Jordan, actual people who are, like, the best at what they do. And I'm sorry, Shemlin, you are not the best at what you do. You're a very good filmmaker he's sometimes. He's very good. He's good. And you're a very bad filmmaker sometimes. And that's fine, but you're not, like, the greatest filmmaker who ever lived. And you should never go into a project thinking that. You shouldn't be like, I'm a brilliant artist making this brilliant thing. Because you're going to always fall flat on your face if you think that. Bob Dylan, like, not every Bob Dylan album is, is, is great. Yeah, you know? true story. His Christmas album, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense that he made a Christmas album. But maybe it does. But, you know, maybe that is his genius. But his 13-minute-long song about the Titanic, the film Titanic. What? Yeah, he did a song about the movie Titanic. I he talks about Leonardo DiCaprio in the song. Yeah. But but I mean, I don't even think Bob Dylan, like in his weird stuff, is doing like I'm brilliant. I'm a genius. Listen to my brilliant genius. I think he's like I just want to make 
an album of covers of mo- songs of Frank Sinatra did. Yeah. This is what I'm into right now. But I think we're getting into the bad part of Shyamalan's career. The, this is like the true lull. This is the beginning of the true lull. And, and we're not even at the worst yet. Like we're no. not even that. Like we're gonna hit rock bottom uh, very soon. It's it's, and, a, it's a rocky <laughs> period. So the takeaways from this episode. <laughs> Are uh, we recommend the Wes Anderson American Express commercial, <laughs> and I recommend Mississippi Masala. Yeah, and uh, so uh, I rank this below the village. Like I would rather watch the village again before I watch this again. Agreed, because yeah, uh, this is the worst. This yeah. is the very bottom for me, and that's crazy thinking about the first few movies, which weren't great at all, but there was something. Kind of good there's about them in there. a weird way. Like there's something interesting about Wide, Wide Awake movies. is not very good, but it's not more than it is trying to be. Yeah, and this movie uh, falls short of its goals, and you can tell. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see where he comes from here. Uh, next month's episode will be very strange. It is the episode of Entourage in which he plays himself in. But you know, we're completists, so we're going to devote a whole episode to that. It'll be a much shorter episode. Much shorter episode. Uh, we can probably get it out uh, quicker than this episode. <laughs> we we both had to read a book, and out of trip, uh, out of town trips happened. Yeah. So uh, sorry, this episode was uh, late. It was still within a month, you know. Still within a month. But you know, maybe we can hammer out this next episode next week, even. Like I can watch an episode of Entourage like in a heartbeat. Like that's easy. And then we can. I bet the episode. I I predict it will be no longer than thirty minutes. If we go to thirty, if we go to the past the length of the, of the actual episode? episode, that would be pretty incredible. I feel like that might be a tangent heavy episode. <laughs> um, and we won't explain to you what all Entourage is. We'll just have a little bit of explanation. But I think this is a yeah. deep in a later season. So the yeah. mytho- this Entourage mythology is already so deep that we won't waste your time with that. <laughs> so uh, if you want though to catch up, watch every episode of Entourage up until that episode next month, and then you'll know exactly where you're at when we talk about the Shyamalan. And we have all the entourages at wonderful Vulcan Video in Austin, Texas. Hooray! With two awesome locations. Hooray! Please uh, please come visit us if you're in Austin, and thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks for sticking with us through these rocky movies, which sometimes lead to rocky episodes. <laughs> Was this a rocky episode? Uh, no. No. I, I never feel good. Though, I always feel like I, I said, um, too much. I, I sound too much like an, air, like an airline pilot talking really slow. But you know what? Our four fans love it. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, so where can people reach us if they have a comment or question? So uh, you can communicate with us. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, we're at VM Night Shift. Uh, we have our website, vmnightshift.com, where you can uh, leave comments there. Uh, you can send us an email uh, at vmnightshift at gmail.com. And uh, you can also, if you like, uh, if you like what you're hearing, uh, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, which would really help us out. What's our rating right now? Our rating right now, uh, I I think it's out of a flat line. Uh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it <laughs> might be a little bit above there. I'm, we don't have many ratings yet. All right. But uh, yeah, if you like what you hear, you know, <laughs> so spread the word. We like talking about movies, so we're going to keep doing it. And hopefully you like uh, hearing about movies. Yeah. All right. Uh, 
Good night. Think. That is the end. Yes. <laughs> Goodbye. Good, good day. night. Good uh, afternoon. Yeah. Tuck yourself in with a good bedtime story. <laughs>